Purihan ang Panginoon. Praise the name of the Lord. Glory to God. Like many of you, he was not born in this country. But he came to this country with his family at age 18 to make a better life. Already, because of his family's business, even at 18, he could be called a Bavarian businessman. And he set up shop with his family in the Midwest, ultimately in Louisville, Kentucky. But at 23 years old, in March of 1854, he arrived in, excuse me, in March of 1844, he arrived in San Francisco. And he was to be a purveyor of dry goods. Not a very exciting career, perhaps. Not a very stimulating product to sell. And yet, to this day, his name and the product that he would become famous for selling, though he did not invent it, it was a partner of his, are still a part of the daily lives of people all over the globe. His name was Levi Strauss. And you know, his arrival was just before the uh, beginning of the California Gold Rush, an era when many people came to this state to make their fortunes out of the gold of the ground. That's hard work and dirty work, and you need tough clothing to be prepared for it. And that is exactly what Levi Strauss intended to sell to people. Levi Strauss had a clientele who were largely working men, and in fact, the first pair of denim jeans as we know them today, blue jeans, were uh, really the result of the creation of working heavy-duty cotton pants that were created for a woodsman. His wife wanted him to have something that wouldn't fall apart on him. And so the rivets that are used on jeans like these to keep them Together, they're not really a fashion statement. They're a working item. They are intended to be durable and they are intended to be strong. But it just so happens that they've also become highly fashionable. And if my friends in the booth will bring up our slides for us, I'm going to tell you why I'm talking about Levi Strauss today and why I'm talking about blue jeans. Because we're beginning a new series today called 501s. 501s just a little bit clever, maybe not that clever, but hopefully you're tracking with me. There are five places in the scripture that we are going to look at over the next five weeks starting today. Five messages that will look at five passages in the Bible where the scripture says there is one thing, one thing that could draw us to God. So it's really five things, right? Although as we go through this series, I think what you'll find is that the five things are one thing. In the same way that there is one Lord God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet we know that our God is three in one, three persons, one God. So also I think you'll see that these five lessons all orbit that one God. These are five places where there is one thing to fix our focus on Jesus Christ. This is a back-to-basics kind of message. This is a back-to-basics kind of series. I hope it will be workable and durable for you, and I think if you put these things on, you'll also find you're looking good. 
ready for work and looking glorious in God. That's our goal for 501s. Let's pray as we come to the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that your word is always imminently practical. We thank you that it is durable. We thank you that as we put on Christ, Christ prepares us to do the work which you, Father God, have called us to do and prepared us to do. So we come today that we would be washed clean by your word and prepared for the raiments of your readiness, your provision, your inspiration by your Holy Spirit that would enter into us, equipping us for the lives you've called us to live and the mission which you have given to us in your name, the very name in which we pray. Amen. You know, 501s, and this is a pair I'm wearing right now. These are 501s. Mine are black. That's another thing I like about 501s. They come in all different colors, just like you and me. There's all kinds of diversity, and yet there is a unity of these garments. They're the workhorse of the garment industry for the reasons I've already described. And yet, as you know, over decades, they became a centerpiece of fashion. They really revolutionized the way human beings dressed in the 20th century, particularly by the mid-20th century when they became a hallmark of youth culture. These days, you can be a pastor in church and wear a pair of 501s. At least no one's run me out on a rail yet. They're a tried and true garment that can be worn in all weather and for all functions, but you know what? They have to be shrunk to fit. And you need to wear them in order to work them out. There's something about the word in that too. This word is ready in season and out of season, if you will. It is ready for all weather. It is good for you when you're in the storm. And it is good for you when you're in the sun. But you've got to wear it. And work your way into it. And allow it to work its way into you. So that it will fit you to the culture of the kingdom. It will make you take on the shape that God has designed for you and me in the image of Jesus Christ. So this series on five of one things is also a set of workhorses, if you will. Simple, practical, applicable uh, paradigms that you can put to work in your life. And yet they will also beautifully express the beauty of God, even as we go back to basics. Five places in the scripture that are pretty tried and true. None of them are going to be revolutionary to your ears, but here's the interesting thing. I loved how, once again, one of our young people shared a verse that is so meaningful for today's message. The idea that you should be careful what you think, because how you think will shape the circumstances of your life. Many of us as human beings say, well, I'll change the way I think when my circumstances change, right? God, change the world around me and I'll start thinking the right way. But what God says, I want to change you from the inside out. I want to change the way you think and that will change the world around you. So these are tried and true statements, but just because they're tried and true doesn't mean they're all through, right? They're tried and true, so apply them. They're tried and true, so remember them. Sometimes these are the kinds of things that we know well, but as we are working our way through the world, we tend to forget. And so this series of messages will be about reminding us of some essential disciplines, some essential doctrines, some essential beliefs that will help us work out our own personal faith in all seasons.
What are these five of ones? They each say one thing. One thing I ask, says King David in Psalm 27. There's one thing I ask, and we'll look at that today. Next week, we'll look at what we lack. One thing that Jesus says you lack and that you may need to complete in Mark chapter 10. One thing you need. This is when Jesus is with Mary and Martha. And Jesus makes Martha aware that there's really only one thing that is needful. Mary finds it. And so can you and I when we look at that passage in Luke chapter 10. So that there would be one thing that we know, even as Jesus teaches us in John 9, through the story of the healing of a blind man who doesn't necessarily know anything very much about God except this, that God has done something for him. One thing I know. And one thing, according to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, that I do. These are five places in Scripture where there's one thing to fix our focus on Christ. And we'll look at them one by one over the coming weeks. So let's begin today in Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord. What is it? Let's find out. In fact, may I ask you to do this? Will you stand and let's read this passage of Psalm 27 together. This is Psalm 27, verse 4. We're going to read it together right here from the screen in the NIV version. Were you ready to read it aloud together and loudly? Let's do that. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. There's something powerful about declaring the word out loud into the air around you. And when we do it together in one accord like that, not only are we consistent with the model of the church from its very earliest days, I'd say we're consistent with what we see of heaven. The kingdom of heaven in the scriptures is a place where all God's people together in unity declare the glory of God and the truth of his word. One thing I ask from the Lord in Psalm 27. The structure of this psalm, not just of that verse, but of the entire psalm, is relevant particularly because this psalm was most likely a battle preparation psalm. In other words, David, who was a king and a worship leader, as you know, in the days of ancient Israel, the Old Testament era, when the kingdom of Israel was still under the rule of one king in Jerusalem established by God on that throne, and his name was King David. He was also a warrior, a warrior king. David understood that warfare and worship go together. Tell the person next to you, warfare and worship go together. When I talk about warfare, understand I'm talking from a biblical perspective for us. David literally went to war. That was the era he lived in, and it is the job of kings, especially in that time, to be commanders-in-chief. But when I'm talking about warfare for us, I'm mindful of what Paul says to the church, that our warfare is not about battle with flesh and blood, not with people, but with principalities and powers, with spiritual oppression and spiritual offenders, the spiritual powers that have a grip on our world and therefore the worldly and fleshly way of thinking and living. If we are to come against those things, not against people, but against falsehood, deceit, oppression, bondage, 
disease and death and destruction and all the accoutrements of hell, we must come against them in the worship of the Lord. Not just the worship of anything, not just worship for the sake of worship, but worship of his holiness, worship of God, worship of Jesus Christ in the spirit. And so that kind of worship is in fact warfare. It comes against the falsehood of the world. It comes against the oppression of the enemy. David was one who knew what it was like to face an enemy on the battlefield and know that your only hope for success was in God. And so this psalm was one that he wrote most likely to prepare not only himself, but his troops for what is a very challenging, daunting situation, a life or death battle where the risks are real and the rewards are real, but hope is only in God. Therefore, the first three verses of the psalm express that trust in God. That's where it begins. That's where worship begins. Worship begins with trust. Real worship does. Anyone can lift up applause. Go to a football game, and when do people cheer? People cheer when the touchdown's already made. Maybe they cheer as it's being made. But how about cheering God before the touchdown is made? Even as we were singing this morning, even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, I'm worshiping you. Why? Because I trust you. That's what real worship is predicated upon. Trust in God to provide victory against the enemy. And then verses 4, 5, and 6, out of that worship, God engenders in us a real heartfelt desire to dwell in his presence. I love you, I trust you, and I want to be in your presence. I want to be in step with you. Now then, out of that comes the petition to God, lifting up the request, hear us, guide us, deliver us from the obstacles that we are facing. And then finally, in the closing verses, David speaks to the people and says, take confidence in God. Having done these things, having expressed our trust in him sincerely, having um, worshiped him with the love of our hearts that seeks to come closer to him, petitioning him for his help and his guidance, now then take confidence in him, stand rooted in that, and encourage the ones on your right and your left. Encourage those who are battling with you. Because you know what? When you go into battle, even if you're courageous, the person on your right or the person on your left might be afraid. And those are the people that have got your back. And you've got theirs. So encourage them. And in that way, each one will be an encouragement to another. Iron sharpening iron. Like the phalanx of the Roman troops standing together makes us stronger in the Lord. And that's part of what David is affirming in this psalm as well. Here is the psalm in its entirety. It's only 14 verses, and I'm going to read it to you. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Imagine these are your words for your situation today. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom or what shall I be afraid? A boss, a neighbor, a financial situation, trouble in a relationship, disease in your body, Should you be afraid of that? God is over it. 
When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Listen, when the devil comes against you, it's the devil who's going to face the failure. It's the devil who's going to be broken. It's the devil who's going down in flames and defeat. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Think of the Lord speaking to Joshua. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, neither be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask. You see, here's David saying, all those things can come against me. I'm not worried, but there's one thing I'll ask for. And one thing alone that I would seek. God, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That's the temple. All the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Not just to be lost in some sort of mindless reverie, but actually to be focused in a very purposeful mission. Looking to you, God. Looking to what you want. Looking to what you say. For in the day of trouble, David continues, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. You see, it's in his presence that the Lord keeps you safe, where he hides you under his wings. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, this is like the tabernacle now, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. God, my Savior. Here David is acknowledging, I don't deserve your attention, but I'm trusting in your mercy and I'm appealing to your grace. And I believe that in your goodness, you will favor those who rely upon you. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path. Why? Because of my oppressors. Listen, more of us would live holier in the Lord if we relied upon the Lord. And more of us would rely upon the Lord if we really believed that the Lord is the one who would deliver us from evil. In other words, a holy life is an empowering life. But you can't make your life holy, and neither can I. Only God can make it holy. But what you can do is you can say, there's one thing I want, and that is God's holiness, his presence in me and in my life. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Will you repeat that? I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's a verse, verse worth memorizing. Believe it. Believe that God will show you good things. Because he does. And he will. Wait for the Lord. And David explains how. Be strong and take heart. That's what waiting is. Be strong, take heart, and worship him. And that's waiting upon the Lord. And when you wait upon the Lord like that... <laughs> you'll get an answer. You'll see him move. The one thing is sought in three ways. 
Do you remember in verse 4 how that one thing is sought? David said, there's one thing I seek, but like a good Hebrew poet, he repeats it three times. One thing I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord. To dwell in the house of the Lord. That's the first of the three ways that it is sought. Will you say that? To dwell in the house of the Lord. The second way is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Say that, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And finally, to seek the Lord in his temple. Will you say that? To seek the Lord in his temple. Now there's a principle of of Hebrew poetic rhetoric. In other words, the structure of poetry in Hebrew. Hebrew poetry is different than English poetry. I'm not very familiar with Tagalog poetry. I, I should learn some. But in English poetry, we recognize that there's meter, there's, there's usually uh, a kind of a cadence, there's often rhyme that is used. In Hebrew poetry, one of the main ways that the language is elevated, that's what poetry, that's what songs are, elevated language, language that is heightened by its structure, by its content, into another realm that's a little more ecstatic, a little more exuberant, a little more emotional, and perhaps a little more spiritual. And one of the ways that Hebrew poetry identifies itself, telegraphs itself, lets you know that this is a poem or a song is through repetition. In fact, I just did that too. Announces itself, telegraphs itself, lets you know. Those are three different ways of saying the same thing. One thing, three ways, and that's what you have here. One thing, three ways. So recognize, to dwell in the house of the Lord is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and is to seek the Lord in his temple. Now, don't gloss over that because I just offered you something valuable there, which is to recognize that each of these phrases defines the other. They're not just flowery language. It's not just repetition for the sake of repetition. It's repetition to emphasize something, to drive a point home. In fact, to drive you and I home, home to the Lord. That's what David is saying. David's saying, I want to live with you. It's not far removed from the 23rd Psalm. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember, the house of the Lord is the place where God is worshipped. When Isaiah went to the temple of God in heaven, which is the house of the Lord, there was the angels constantly yelling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. It's called the trihagion in theological circles, which means three things, but one thing said three times. So David is essentially showing us that To dwell in the presence of God is to recognize his beauty and to seek his beauty. And his beauty is his ways, his will, his purpose, his face. So these three things are one thing. And it is actually, essentially, what Jesus himself describes when he encounters a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4. And describes to her, tells her, what real worship looks like from God's perspective. That's worth knowing, isn't it? We have a lot of people who can tell us what we think worship is, but what's really important to God is how he sees it. If you and I want to worship God in a way that pleases him, we ought to seek his face and seek his will for what is real worship. And what Jesus said is, true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. These are the kinds of worshipers that the Father seeks. David, who had a heart like God's, had a heart that was chasing after the heart of the Father. David was a worshiper in spirit and in truth. So the one thing that is asked is showing us this kind of worship. And it's all the more profound because it's expressing this devotion in the context of trust when there's a lot of reason to be afraid. This is trust before the battle, not after. This is trust when you're marching into the face of death, into the maw of war, into the lion's den, into the fierce confrontation with the enemy. And that's where David is worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's so easy for us when we face challenges and obstacles, we, you know, our legs start going wild crazy. We're scared and nervous and afraid. And it's the last kind of attitude that we would have is trust. But that's what makes it a sacrifice, you see. We put to death our fleshly fear and what we do is elevate, we lift up our trust in the Lord. We lift up our requests of the Lord and we say, I believe you'll take care of me. So the psalmist here is facing enemies and battles. He's in a day of trouble. He's facing unfair persecution and he's calling out for justice and mercy. He's not saying, oh, I don't care, it's no biggie. No, it matters a great deal but he's calling out to the Lord. So in facing enemies and battles, he is rejoicing in the safety and the victory that he believes and declares that the Lord will provide. And you know, by making that positive declaration, you are focusing your mind and your soul on a truth that will change the circumstances around you. So if you're going into battle, if you're facing challenges in your life, and we all are, you out there, all of us, I'm facing them, you face them, that's, that's the world. In this world, said Jesus, you will have troubles. But take heart, I've overcome the world, says Jesus, right? So when you're facing those troubles, the thing to do is to rejoice. And as you do that, as you think that way, as you confess that way, what will happen is your whole attitude will be shaped by that into a victorious one. In the day of trouble, when you're unfairly persecuted, call out on God. Seek him and ask for his teaching. Look into the word. What do people do in your word who are righteous when they face something like what I'm facing? How did Jesus people treat people when they were unfair to him? How did David treat people when they were unfair to him? How did David act when he had failed? That's some guidance to me, right? The word is full of God's teaching and God's guidance. The Holy Spirit also will show you and I how we are to respond in the day of trouble and to wait on the Lord as we wait for his justice and to express trust in him, not just to yourself, but to others so that people know, wow, they're facing a really hard time. She hasn't been treated rightly. He's really been suffering and yet look at their faith. 
Look at how they trust in God. I remember having a conversation, which I've shared from this pulpit before, about a time when I had a Christian co-worker who was one of the most joyous and peaceful guys I knew, and then I found out that just about a year and a half earlier, his 21-year-old son had died after a very brief struggle with intense cancer. And I was so amazed that this joyous, peaceful, strong, sturdy, faith-filled man had gone through something like that, and he seemed open enough and confident enough that I could even ask him, how did you survive that? And what he said was, the Lord. It's not that he didn't care. It's not that it didn't hurt. It's that he trusted in the Lord. And thank heavens, his son knew the Lord, so he also trusted in this. He trusted in the resurrection. That's the biggest trust of all for the biggest battle of all. And yet Jesus has already won that battle and said, it's finished. I've overcome death. So wait on the Lord for that finished work to be worked out in you. And that, my friends, is worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. It's not just the way you and I sing on a Sunday morning. It includes that. It's just that it includes everything else. Turn to the other person on the other side and say, worship includes everything in my life. Hey, did you know this? Did you know that you are always worshiping? You're always worshiping. You out there, you might not even be a believer in Jesus Christ. You're worshiping all the time. Because worship is about what you put your focus on, what you hope in, what you want, and what you trust. And there's always something at the center of those things. You're worshiping all the time. But what you and I need to recognize is we're not always worshiping God. That's what idolatry is all about. That's why idolatry is not some old leftover remnant of what people used to struggle with. It is the one thing that takes people away from God. Idolatry is the issue. And God's always made that plain. All the other sins that you and I could think of are variants of idolatry or reflections of it. So what the Father is looking for is people who live worship to him all the time. Now look, we fail in that. And he knows. And he made provision for that on the cross. But what he says is, if you'll turn your heart to me, I'll give you a new heart. And you will become eternal worshipers of me. You want to know what heaven is? You want to know what the kingdom is? The new heaven and the new earth? It's the place where people worship God all the time. And that's all there is. Somebody out there might think, that sounds boring. If it sounds boring to you, it just reflects that you don't know what real worship is. And maybe you don't know the real Lord. Because anyone who's come into an encounter with him will readily recognize this truth. When you start worshiping him in spirit and in truth, you don't need anything else. There's only one thing you ask him. And it's enough and more than enough for all eternity. Hallelujah. So, to dwell in the house of the Lord all my days is to be with God. It's not just some archaic phrase. It's David's way of expressing, I want to be with you. I want to be on your side. I want to be in your will. Jesus put it this way. 
I'd like this cup of pain and suffering and separation from you to pass from me, but not my will, said Jesus the Christ, but your will, Father, and that was worship. That's what made the cross possible as a salvation for you and I, because Jesus was willing to go to it. And Jesus said, that's the way to follow me. Take up your own cross. And your cross is going into whatever battle God has called you to face and doing it with trust. And not saying, God, be on my side, but instead saying, God, I want to be on yours. Remember Joshua generation? When Joshua encountered the angel of the Lord, the commander of the armies of heaven, whom I suggest to you is Jesus Christ himself in a pre-incarnate visitation to the world. And Joshua says to him, are you for us? Or are you for the enemy? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And this angel of the Lord says, neither. I command the armies of heaven. I'm on my side. But what he is coming in and saying is, I want you to be on my side too. And because of that, I'm with you. Now, you and I could never come to the side of God unless God invited us. But God invited us. That's the good news. Hallelujah. When we were still his enemies, he reached out with the blood of our Savior, his son, to say, there's one thing I want, and it's you. How about that? David says, there's one thing I want, and Jesus says, there's one thing I want. David wants God, and God wants you. God wants David, too. He's got him. Does he have you? Does he have me? To be with God is to say, I'm not asking you to be on my side. I'm asking you to bring me alongside you. But what God has already said is, if you are with me, I'll be with you. And I'll be at your side. You know, that's what the Greek term paraclete means. The besider, the stand besider. You say, well, what is paraclete? That's the Holy Spirit, friend. That's the helper. God standing beside you and drawing you to his side, the very side that was pierced and poured out blood and water for you and I to wash us and redeem us and prepare us for a mission. Hallelujah. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord is to know God. Seeing in the scriptures, just like in our idiom today, means I see, right? What about when you're looking at a math problem? Ugh, I used to have to do that. And you'd look at it and you just go, I just can't. I can't figure this out. I can't figure this out. And then the stand beside her comes along you, the tutor, and says, let me help you see. And finally, you put the pieces together and you recognize, I see. I see it. Oh, it's beautiful. That's gazing on the beauty of the Lord. <gasps> Lord, you've opened my eyes. Think about the, uh, the, the assistant of the prophet of the Lord who said, we're all alone against these enemies. And the prophet said, Lord, open his eyes. And all of a sudden, the assistant saw there were angelic troops all around. I see, it's beautiful because it's God. Let God open your eyes to what he's already doing in you, for you. And even if you don't see, see in the spirit. We don't live by sight of our eyes. We live by faith. To observe God's words, I see this word and I meditate on it. I speak it. That is to know the beauty of God and to worship him with my trust and with my witness. 
In my heart, I will trust you. With my mouth, I will confess you. Whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord shall be saved. Do you realize that's not just a ticket, you know, the e-ticket ride of heaven. What God is saying there is that's the way to victory in your battle. Believe it in your heart, confess it with your mouth, and you'll see it on the battlefield. If you're not seeing victory in your life, there's probably a place where you're not seeking the Lord. Now, it may be that you would say, I'm seeking the Lord with everything I've got and I'm not seeing victory on the battlefield. Then trust in the Lord and keep on trusting. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet nevertheless, he followed that by saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's trust. You're gone, it seems. You've turned your face away from me, it seems. But I will still trust you. Job put it this way, even if he kills me, I will still praise him. So if that's where you're at today, you're not alone. Job ended up better off than he began. And let me tell you this, you're not alone because Jesus Christ has been where you are and worse. And he did it voluntarily for you. So if you feel like God's not on your side, let me tell you, Jesus is here to open your eyes and let you know he's with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, said Jesus. Here's a couple of slides I want to talk about. Very practical things. I'm going to come back to my hobby horse here about reading the Bible. I say, does this guy ever get tired of harping on this? No, because I'll tell you what, it makes a huge practical difference. You know, the Bible is the word of God, which is bread of heaven to us. Imagine you went to a village somewhere and people were starving and there was a huge garden full of food and pens of animals, cattle ready for the slaughter. You thought you could have the best barbecue here. You could have the grandest feast, but the people don't eat it. And they're literally sick and dying. And you'd say, but look, look at all the storehouses of grain. Look at all the fields of crops and the orchards. Why don't you eat? Oh, I did. I ate that. I ate that a couple of months ago. You know, I should eat more, I know. I had a little, a little bit of apple last week. I'll have some more later. There are Christians, at least so-called, who are starving in the spirit. They may be fat in the flesh. I'm not talking about bodies now. I'm talking about the fleshly mindset. Flabby in the things of the world. Gluttonous eating the junk food of, of this world, but starving in the spirit. And yet the Lord says, here is a table feast laid out for you. Eat it and let your spirit be strengthened. Do I spend at least five minutes reading the word at least four days a week? You go, but that's, that's nothing. And some of you out there might be going, I got that all over. Great, good. Don't be proud about it. It's like me saying, do you have at least one meal a day, at least four days a week? Oh, yeah, I do that. Okay, well, that's, you know, you're, you're surviving on that. Uh, I hope you do a lot more, right? But if you're not doing just that, you've probably got some health problems. What if I read the Bible every day? You think, do you not read the Bible every day, Pastor Courtney? No, I do. I'm speaking for you now. I hope that you read the Bible every day. This is not to convict somebody, oh, I feel so guilty. No, why, why would you feel guilty about it? Just change. Make a change in your pattern. But think about this. What if every day your spirit was being fed with the seed of God? Don't you think that would make a difference in your heart? You better believe it does. 
What if those five minutes, and it could be more, but it's got to be at least five minutes. You know what I mean? You've got to have at least five minutes. But now there's research about this. The people who will read at least five minutes, four days a week, nobody in the room, nobody within the sound of my voice can't do that. I don't care how busy your schedule is. I don't care how important your job is or what demands you've got. You can do five minutes, four days out of seven. No question about it. In fact, most everybody in the room can do a lot more than that. But if you do at least that, the data indicates there is a practical tipping point. Now, the data is not what I'm relying upon to preach this to you. I'm relying upon the evidence of the word and the, and the unction of the Holy Spirit. But the empirical evidence is people who do that actually live dramatically differently. And Christians who go to church every week and sing songs and claim the name of Jesus but don't read the Bible with that frequency, actually their lives are not demonstrably different than anybody who doesn't read the Bible at all. So if you're reading the Bible three days a week, you're not reading it enough to make a change in your life if that's consistent. Now, maybe there's a week where you only read three days. Maybe there's months or years where you only read that way. Fine. Whatever is past is past. But one thing you can do today is say, I'm going to start reading more. And not just reading, but investigating, speaking, going deeper. Do you have a plan? I love this idea of the first five. The first five minutes of your day could be spent in the Word. Watch your day be revolutionized if the first five minutes of your day are spent in the Word. You don't go outside the house without your pants on or something, right? So here's some 501s for you. Put on the Word first. One leg at a time, get the Word on you. No, you know, you can say, well... It wasn't the first five minutes, but it was within the first 30. Look, it's not a legalistic thing, but front load the word in your day so that God can get into you right away. What if I read a little bit more? What if I make an intentional plan? What if I go a little deeper? What if I journal? Start writing down insights I get from the word. Start writing down things that I hear from the Lord. Start writing down prayers that I have. Start writing down visions that I receive. What if I applied what I'm reading in my daily life, right? What a thought. What if instead of just making this my religious duty that I do sometimes and then go live any way I want, what if I actually incorporated the things I'm seeing, hearing, learning, and receiving into how I'm speaking, how I'm thinking, how I'm behaving? What if when I read something that convicts me, I actually think I've got to change and Lord, you've got to change me and allow the word like a sword like a scalpel, to make its way into me. The meditation of prayer is one of the ways that you can know God. Seek God in his word. See his beauty in the meditation of your time with him. Do you take your requests to God or do you go your own way? Do you listen for God's prompting in your heart or are you constantly attentive to all the distractions around you? Do you ask God for his will each day? Imagine that. In the first five minutes when you're reading the word, God, Jesus, I'm, I'm your servant. I've got plans for today. I want them to be yours. In other words, I don't want my own plans. I want yours to be what guide my day. What do you want me to do today? You think, well, I've got to go to work and i got to... You don't have to do anything except the will of the Lord. One thing I ask, that your will would be my life. You say, Pastor, are you saying I shouldn't go to work? I'm saying you should ask the Lord for what you're to do every day. I think if God is telling you not to go to your job day after day, it may be that God is telling you you're in the wrong job. 
But most likely, God is not going to ask you to do bizarre and strange things, especially if you're hearing his voice through his word and by his spirit and in the context of a community where you have others that know the Lord that can help you to, to clarify what you're hearing, how you're being led, what you're sensing. You've got pastors and teachers to help you with that. It's not going to be some bizarre cultic kind of practice. What we're talking about is actually believing that on a day-by-day -day basis, the Lord has something he wants to speak to you. And it may simply be asking the question and making yourself available, considering that God might have some on-course correction for you today. Can I give more time to be with him daily? It's just a question. If there's one thing that you seek, and he can be found by you whenever you seek him, if you will seek him with your whole heart. As he said through the prophet Jeremiah, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with everything within you. Why not seek him as much as you can? I don't mean that you go into a prayer closet and lock yourself away for 18 hours for days on end. That may be wonderful to create a, a sabbatical where you get to do that if you can. What I mean is when you're on the freeway, and you're driving, and you're doing it in a safe and, and dedicated and diligent way, you're also praising the Lord and seeking Him. That in work, when you're doing your work, you're aware God's with me. And maybe through my work, He's going to speak to me or guide me also. That on the street, that in the home, whatever you're doing, God's there. And you're seeking Him. How about when you've done something wrong? Do you repent of it? Do you confess and repent of wrong? You know, a lot of us live under this mistaken notion of grace that is basically this. Anything I do wrong is forgiven, and so I don't really need to worry about whatever wrong I do because God understands. But that's not at all what the Bible says. See, if you read the Bible, then you'll know. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is every wrong thing has been forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but must be applied through the expression of confession and repentance. Amen. If we will confess and repent, he is faithful to apply that forgiveness and to cleanse and redeem. But if we don't confess and repent, we're holding on to sin that he's already forgiven, but we haven't let go of, and it still has a hold of us. This is a way to see God's beauty in your life. It's not easy. It's hard. But Jesus didn't say it would be easy. What he said is he would help. In fact, he said, I'll do it if you just want it. Seek this and I'll give it to you. There's patterns of living that act out the worship of God in our lives. Do I gather with the body in weekly worship? Well, here you are. I'm glad you do. And you know what? Don't forsake that, as the author of Hebrews says. Because some people, when they forsake the gathering together, they actually end up forsaking the worship of the Lord. And therefore, the victory of the Lord starts to go south in their life. If you're not with us today, but you're online because you're not feeling well or you're not able physically to be here, we're glad that you're with us online. And that's a great way to participate from a, from a distance. But I also want to say that unless you're in a situation where you really physically can't regularly attend, that online viewing of worship services or recorded teachings cannot substitute for being physically present with the body of Christ on a regular basis in the local place where God has put you. You've been stationed in a troop of God's people with a mission, and we can't do it without you. So there's times when all of us are going to be away, and that's why we're grateful for online, and that's why we're grateful for recordings, and sometimes it's a way to reach out to people who wouldn't come through the door anyway, but at some point, you've got to be here. 
or in the local place of Christ's body that's near you, where God's calling you, where the word is taught, where the spirit is welcomed, where the name of Jesus Christ and the reality of who he is, is worshiped. Do you have a mentor? You need somebody who's a little bit further along the spiritual path than you that can help you. I need that, you need that, we all need that. And you are further along than somebody else. You need to be one who supplies that kind of mentorship to others. Don't impose it on somebody. Find somebody who wants it from you. Let the Lord direct you to that. But you need that and you need peers. People who aren't necessarily behind you in the spirit or ahead of you in the spirit, but beside you in the spirit and can be counselors to you too. We all need that 360 mentoring. And it's part of the way of seeing and seeking the beauty of God in our lives. Do I give of my time and my talents and my treasure? If you're giving of your money, God bless you and thank you, but that doesn't substitute for your time or your talent. And if you're giving of your time and your talent, you're serving in ministries, you're teaching, but you don't give any money, I want you to know it's all inclusive. We give of all of these things because there's one thing we seek, and it's not our own acclaim and it's not our own wealth, it's to do the will of the Lord. Do I share with others who God is? and how he helps. In other words, do I give a witness of how God has acted on my behalf in my life? Can't you hear in David's psalm that his trust in the Lord is from, is founded in the victories God's already given him, the protections that God has already performed in his life. So that's part of how David is so confident. And that's how his troops become confident. If you hold back your testimony you're not going to see other people coming strongly to the Lord. But if you will release your testimony, you'll see people released as well, released into the fullness of what God has for them. When I'm in trouble, do I go to God or run away? Remember last week we talked about the man and the woman in the garden, Adam, who we know as Adam and Eve. And when they sinned and went against God and started suffering from the death that they had already uh, unleashed in their lives through their sin. They didn't go to God, they went running. He came for them, but they went running away. They hid. And that's the way you and I often are. But what David is saying is, come to God. Go to God when you're in trouble. When you've done wrong, when wrong has been done against you, when you're facing a desperate enemy, go to God. So, to dwell in the house of the Lord all my days is to be with God. And one way that I can do that, if that's the one thing that I ask, is God saying to me, if that's what you want, read my word and let my word read you. Take my word into you and speak it out. Let the word be a daily part of your life. And God will draw you to him through it. If you want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, it means I want to know God for who he is and I want to observe his ways in my life. Then pray and meditate, not just speaking to God, but listening for him. Being quiet and letting him speak to you as well by his spirit. Spending time thinking about him and adoring him and committing to live for him, not as a lone ranger on your own, but part of the body that he has placed you into, his own body. A giving, growing, showing part of the body where you give of yourself to the body and the body grows through what you give and you grow through what the body gives because it's Christ who's the head of all and you show the world who Jesus really is. This is worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. 
having confident trust in his presence at all times, but especially in times of trouble. That is when it really counts the most. Not necessarily even so much for God, but for us. That's when our worship gets really real. One thing I ask in Psalm 27.4 is to know and love God. Everything else flows from that. David is on the verge of possible death and destruction. And he's not saying, give me victory. He's saying, victory is in you. Give me you. Let me belong to you. And let me dwell with you forever. Draw me close to you. That's what I want, Lord. To know you and to love you. Not just with my mouth, but with my life. With everything that I think, say, or do. God will answer that prayer. In fact, God's the one that's saying, this is the one thing that makes every other thing take its right place. If, these, if this one thing is out of order, your whole life will be out of order. But if this one thing is the capstone of your life, then this will be the door that opens, the blessing of God, the equipping of God, the wisdom and will of God into your life. Next week, we're going to talk about the one thing that we lack. But for today, I'm going to ask if the worship team would come to the platform. We're going to conclude our time in a time of prayer and a time of worship. And I want to say, what is the one thing that you ask for in your life? I don't mean on the basis of this message. I mean, if you and I will be honest before the Lord now, let's come before him in an honest manner. What is the one thing that we really are always asking for from him? Or the one thing we're always asking for from the universe, if you want to put it that way. The one thing that you're always asking others for, or the one thing that you wish for. You say, if, I, if only I had this, it would solve every other thing. What the Lord says to us today is, I need to be that one thing. Because if it's not me, it's some other God. And you're worshiping some other God. But if me, who I am, not even who you think I am, but who I really am, if that's what you want, you have it. You have me. Come into my presence now, says the Lord. Listen. Don't let anything hold you back. You have sins, I'll wash them clean. I already have through my blood, says Jesus Christ. You have worries and fears? Look to my servant David. He trusted in me, so can you. Are you facing injustice? I'll be your righteous judge. Have you done injustice? I'll be your merciful redeemer. Have you lost your way? I'll be your light and your guide. <laughs> Do you think that I've lost my way? Some promise of mine or dream of yours that isn't coming through? Dear one, the Lord says to you, understand this right now. If there's any dream above me, it's a nightmare. But if you will trust your dreams and ambitions into my hand, I will show you my will for you is even better than anything you could ever ask, hope, or think. Someone out there hearing my voice, watching now or in a recording, maybe you're thinking, you know, I can't really understand this. Doesn't make sense to me. This is a supernatural thing right now. And you feel it and you're a little freaked out by it. It's God. You're thinking, I don't really understand this, but all of a sudden I, I want God. 
and I never really felt that way before, but right now I want God and I can't explain it. You know what it is? It's that he wants you so much that his love has broken down the wall of that door that you closed to him and it's his love that's drawing you to him. He's putting the ask in your heart because he already asked for you. And you know what? God gets what he wants. And I'm glad that he does because what he wants is good. And today, friend, what he wants is you. So just give yourself to him. He said, I don't know how. Just fall into his arms. Just fall into his hands. Maybe you're a believer who walked with him a long time, but you think, I feel like this, this applies to me. It's a new level of asking and seeking for the Lord in your heart and God's giving it to you today. And if you think, I don't feel that, but I want it, then ask. You have not because you ask not, but if you'll ask and if you'll seek and if you'll knock, God will open that door to you. You could live a thousand days, a thousand years, a thousand lifetimes with all the riches of this world, all the victories of every army ever assembled, all the authority and power of the combined governments of mankind, and never ever come close to the joy of one day in the house of the Lord. Better is one day in your courts, Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. 